You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Chipper uh, start to the morning with our reading. Some nervous chuckles. Um, Glad you all are with us. We are a Jesus-centered community who is, uh, together we're seeking connection to Jesus. And we, we believe that connection to Jesus and connection with one another can bring about our redemption, real, actual, substantial life and change. And we believe that by pursuing grace among one another and from God and with one another and sharing our lives and our time and our resources and ourselves with one another and exploring difficult passages like these and exploring each other's lives and exploring the God who has revealed God's self through Jesus, we believe that we can find that connection and that redemption. So we're really glad you're here. If you're new to us, welcome. Um, You can grab one of those cards in front of the seat in front of you, and you can fill it out and drop it in the back on your way out the door. We'd love to say hello, get to know you, hear your story, that kind of thing. But this morning, we are going to deal with uh, a challenging passage, and really the entire story that is itself challenging. If you'd like to follow along, you can go to redemptionhou.com slash today. You'll see this morning's text is up there. You can also read along in the Bibles that, are, um, that you've brought or that are in front of you. Or you can pull out your phone. It's 2023, and you can ask AI just to tell you what the point of this sermon is, and it can maybe tell you. And that's like my third or fourth week in a row to bring up AI, so I may have a problem or a fear, uh, but we'll see. So I, w- I want to just up front and give you the kind of the big idea for this morning's sermon, and it's the idea that God has committed himself to humanity. And this is an idea that was, that was brought up in Genesis and that is brought through into the Exodus story. And we're going to look at kind of the first part of this this week and then the second part of this next week. But that God has committed God's self to humanity and he has revealed himself to be a liberating God of love. Now, I realize that in the context of the passage we read, there might be some, huh? Um, but I think... Part of that is because we're just really unfamiliar with the Old Testament. We don't read the Old Testament much, and we hear passages like this, which I may or may not have intentionally pulled out um, to kind of draw us in a little bit. But I I think if we will let the Old Testament speak for itself on its own terms, the the picture that we hear of, of who God is and what God is like and what God is up to in the world is actually not that different from the picture that Jesus reveals to us. In fact, Jesus is going to say, hey, the... The God of the Old Testament is me, and the entire Old Testament scriptures are pointing to me. And so if we're reading these passages and we somehow think that ethnic cleansing is a good thing, we are reading them wrong. We can take Jesus at his word and believe, like, wait a second, there must be something more going on here. 
And so this summer, we're exploring the Old Testament together, these scary and dark and unfamiliar um, scriptures that belong to Jesus. And isn't it interesting that, that these, are, these are scriptures that passages like this that Jesus would have memorized and internalized and possibly even meditated on. It, it, this passage in particular, annually, as the Hebrew people would gather together for Passover, they would recite this tradition um, and most likely had this passage in their mind. And the Old Testament, I'm convinced, points us to Jesus and helps us reimagine our place in the world today. That, it, that it's not just scriptures that were for some other people in some other time, that there's something there that with Jesus is kind of our lens and our grid to understand them, that it actually could be really life-giving for us. And so we don't have to read these sacred texts as disinterested outsiders. That the sacred texts of the Hebrew people become our sacred texts because they're Jesus' sacred texts. And Jesus assures us that they direct them to him. So this week, we've been reading through Exodus. Um, If you've been really negligent because it's summer and you're like, why are you giving me summer reading? What are you, a teacher? I'm like, yeah, kind of, actually. I did it for eight years. Um, Summer reading was my thing, and no one did it then either, so it's fine. But like, I, I really encourage you, I think doing some of this reading will, will add a little bit to um, what we're doing on Sunday mornings. But if you were like most people and didn't or forgot or ran out of time or just are like new and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, totally fine. Like we will jump in and talk about it anyways. And at any point, you can dive into the reading. You can go to the Today page and there is a link where you can click on our, hey, here's what we're reading this week. And it's broken down by week or you can see it day by day. And so if it's like Tuesday and you're like, oh yeah, the reading, you can jump in on Tuesday, click the link and see what is everyone reading today and join us. And so the question I want to address today is how does, especially this first part of Exodus, how does it help us reimagine our place in the modern world as followers of Jesus? And in that, we, we will address some of this like, wait, did God just kill or at least commission the killing of the firstborn of Egypt? And what do we do with that? But it's important to know that as we approach the Old Testament, uh, since we're entering a new book, we were in the scroll of Genesis last week, we're in the scroll of Exodus this week, it's important for us to remember that, that each one of these books is itself like its own thing that has its own genre and its own content and its own like theological point that it's trying to get across, but that they're all put together in this unity and this story that is like directing us towards Jesus. And this isn't just like wishful thinking. Like if you open up Exodus in Hebrew, the very first word of the very first line in the book of Exodus is and. Right, so the, and this is actually true of most of the Hebrew scriptures. Most books of the Old Testament begin with the word and. And many of those, and then it happened. And so the idea is that we are building on something that came before us. And so Exodus is going to connect itself to Genesis. And so last week, what we saw is that Genesis is this story of God creating this beautiful cosmos, humanity violating it with violence and cursing, and God's plan to restore it by inserting himself into the story, by using this family and all of their messiness to bless that family and the rest of the cosmos. So in the face of humanity's violence, in the face of humanity's cursing, God is no longer going to give them what they deserve and cleanse the earth with a flood, which he tried and that didn't go so great. 
Instead, God is going to give humanity what it does not deserve, flourishing and blessing, and he's going to do it through this family. That was last week. You can go and listen to those sermons if that's intriguing for you. But when we begin Exodus, Exodus is connecting itself back to Genesis. And if you read with us, then you may have noticed some of this language. You get to the beginning of Exodus, and in chapter 1, here are the sons of Jacob. The sons of Israel are in Egypt, and they're flourishing. They're being fruitful, and they're multiplying. Literally, they're multiplying across the face of the earth, which was the commission that God had given them. That was the blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. And so they are filling the earth with the presence of all of their like Hebrewness. But Pharaoh sees this not as the blessing of God, he sees this as a threat to empire. And so grab a Bible if you've got one. Um, there's one in front of you if you need one. If you want to pull out your phones, do that. But we're going to be in a bunch of different texts today, and I, I find it's helpful to have it in front of me. We're going to be in the NASB for most of today. We'll switch it up uh, towards the very end. But whatever translation you prefer is the best one. I like to say, whichever one you'll read and can actually sort of understand, that's the good translation for you. So we're in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. And now a new king arose over Egypt. Now remember, right? End of Genesis, we're in Egypt. There's a pharaoh, and uh, one of the sons of Jacob has risen to power. He had like a a color code and all that, right? Remember the story? Um, Right, so the irony here is the promise to Abraham was, hey, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And so here is one of these sons of Jacob with this promise of Abraham in Egypt who rises to power and all of Egypt is blessed in the midst of a famine because of this Jewish family, because of this son of Jacob. And so you begin Exodus and here are these sons of Jacob, these sons of Israel's flourishing But a new Pharaoh arose in the land of Egypt, who did not know Joseph, verse 9. And he said to his people, look, behold, the people, the sons of Israel, they're too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So one of, one of our problems in reading the Old Testament is we try to ask modern questions of ancient texts. Uh, questions that the ancient text isn't really like, not, is it, not, is it, not only is it not answering those questions or asking those questions, those questions aren't even in that world. They're millions of miles away from what the text is trying to do. And in asking those questions, and they're good questions, they're important questions, right? So I'm not saying the questions are bad. I'm saying we're trying to impose questions on the text that the text is not dealing with. And what happens when we do that is we miss the point. And so what I want to encourage us to do, in spite of your many valid and real modern questions, is let the text give it some room to breathe and let it speak on its own terms and let's see what it actually has to say. And so with this text, we see this Pharaoh figure enter the story. And it's really interesting because Pharaoh's never given a name in the story, um, but like even these, these uh, midwives are named. And that's intentional, right? This isn't just like, oh yeah, we forgot the, the, the leader of that empire's name, but we remember the midwives. No, this is all kind of the point. And so Pharaoh is given this like shrouded, dark 
uh, mystique. He's this mysterious, evil person in the story. And then the Hebrew is going to use this language that we haven't seen since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they encounter a snake. And the snake was shrewd. And so this language is taken from Genesis 3, it's then dropped down into Exodus 1, and on the lips of Pharaoh, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, which is what God wants, and lest they go and inherit the land, which is what God wants. And so this shrewd, snake-like, serpent-like figure named Pharaoh in the story is trying to stop the plan of God to bless humanity through this family because it's a threat to his empire. You tracking with me? Okay. So this is Exodus's introduction to this anti-God way of life that exists in the world. And for centuries, Jews and Christians, and I think even Jesus in the New Testament, uses this language as this like metaphor for sin and evil and like literal empires that never seem to be really that great and interested in human flourishing. They always, for some reason, seem to be really interested in themselves. Imagine that. And so the immediate story is this representative figurehead of Egypt sees these slaves as a very real and a very present danger to his people. And the Hebrew text brings them off the page to let us in on the reality that these are the same forces that are actually still at work in our world today. And so a, uh, a really famous um, Old Testament theologian, he wrote uh, The Exodus and Revolution, right? And this, it was this uh, liberation theology work that that dealt with in all of these places where there is revolution and counter-revolution and all that. How, how does Exodus, the book of Exodus, play a role in those? And he says this, that wherever you live, it is probably Egypt. And, and then the point is this, is that this power, this Pharaoh, this, this Egypt that is at work, that is trying to oppress in its, uh, in its own self-servingness is not a new phenomenon. It's actually been around for quite a while and is still here with us today. And this empire of sin and death are these anti-God forces that are actually destroying us. And so this empire of darkness does what it always does in its various forms. It introduces violence and cursing. And so what does Pharaoh do when he's threatened? He is going to enslave the Israelites. So they weren't enslaved yet at the beginning of the story. So he decides, hey, let's, let's enslave them. And the way the language comes out is the point is to crush them. Like, we might as well get something out of them as we kill them is essentially what's going on here. So he oppresses them under the work of their work, and they just work and work and work. And the idea is this image of him just pulverizing them. And the response is that God causes them to multiply, right? So it has the opposite effect of what Pharaoh wants. And so then he goes into attempt number two. I'll kill all of their newborn sons. And this is where you get this story of Puah and Shifra, these uh, midwives who are in like league with, with uh, the empire. They are uh, servants of the empire and yet they don't do what Pharaoh asked them to do. And the reason that the Hebrew text gives you is wh why would these non-threatening in the story, they would be seen as weak, um, don't have power, don't have influence, don't have position. Why would they not just do what Pharaoh 
would tell them to do. And the reason is, according to the Hebrew Bible, because they feared God. Right? And this isn't like they feared God, like I'm going to get a tattoo on my throat. This is fear God, homie. You know what I mean? Like this is they feared God and dot, dot, dot instead of Pharaoh. That I'm more worried about offending him than I am about offending, offending the emperor. This is kind of the picture that this paints. And so these heroines are seen um, in this really positive light. And it's also, they, they make Pharaoh this strong, powerful, masculine king. They make him look weak and feeble and not great, which is kind of the point. And so Pharaoh's response then, since that didn't work, is he finally just decides, you know what, just take every newborn male that exists among the Hebrew people and then throw them into the Nile. And I I want us to enter the story for just a second. And if you're one of the Hebrews enslaved, whose children were being taken from your arms after you had just carried them, delivered them, birthed them, delivered them, as they're suckling on your teeth, they're ripped from your arms and thrown into the Nile, what questions might you have for God in that moment? The God that swore to you, hey, I will will bless you. I will cause you to flourish. I will make you a people and a nation. And through you, all the rest of the earth, all of humanity will be blessed through you. And here you sit in slavery with your children being ripped from you and thrown like trash into the river. And with that in mind, suddenly the end of this story starts to make a little bit better sense. When God will revisit on Pharaoh the very evil that he is putting out into the world. And it's almost this like karmic telling of the story. It's, oh, you like, you like killing firstborn? Well, let's see what happens when your firstborn are taken from you. And the language is a mirror, right? So under all of this oppression in the text we're going to look at here in just a second, the Israelites groan and cry out in their oppression. And the language used of the Egyptians in chapter 12 that we read is that same Hebrew language of crying out and groaning. And so what God has done here is literally what Mary prays in her Magnificat. He takes the proud and he debases them. And he takes the humble and he elevates them. He takes the rich and he brings them down. He takes the king and he topples their thrones. Then he takes the poor and enslaved people and he elevates them. This is why Mary, as a Hebrew woman who's about to deliver the Messiah of the world, can pray this type of prayer because she was deeply familiar with the Exodus. She understood that God, above all else, is a liberating God who does not look at evil and go, oh yeah, I guess it's just fine, it'll be what it'll be, who looks at evil, who sees it and goes, no, 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 I can't let evil go unnoticed, I have to do something. And so the question that we are being asked as we look at this story with this connection to Genesis, this new empire, is this empire has like really obvious advantages. Like if you strip away the theology of the story of Exodus and you're just living in Egypt at the time, do you want to be an Egyptian or do you want to be an Israelite? The correct answer for all of us would be, no, we want to be be on the side of power and influence and wealth and prosperity and flourishing and blessing. And so what the whole point of this story is to show you that that entire empire was an illusion 
all along. That the real blessed people were the enslaved. The real blessed people were the, the ones being pulverized by the empire. And so the Exodus pulls back the curtain to shows us and shows us that empire as a source of blessing and strength and protection is an illusion. And we go back to the quote from Michael Walser, wherever you live, it is probably Egypt. That there is something at work in the world that is promising you blessing and flourishing and protection and safety and elevation, and it is most likely actually oppressing you. It is most likely actually trying to kill you. And I think of something, and I know I bring this up all the time, y'all. I'm like, I really, I don't have an issue with it. Maybe I do. Um, like social media, right, is a great example of this. It's just like a super small, simple thing that's actually not that simple and small. We're like, it's just, I don't, it's just like you scroll and you look at some pictures and you click on some stuff and it's like, it's innocent fun, right? And now there's like all this research being out, coming out that's like, oh yeah, and it's also leading to like this escalating rate of suicide and depression and mental health issues. And you're like, oh, and this thing that we go to, that I go to for like just a, a minute of like life. I just need a little bit of life right now. A little bit of just turning my brain off and getting some dopamine. Is that the right one? Is it dopamine? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, a little bit of dopamine. Thank you. My science people are going to back me up. Um, and yet we find out, shocker, like the rest of empire all the time throughout the history of humanity, it's really just killing us. And that it's interested in basically taking you and commodifying you and serving itself and its own interests in order to build its empire greater and greater and greater. It doesn't care how many of you kill themselves. This is what empire does. This is what Egypt stands for. This is who Pharaoh represents. It's the kingdom of darkness. And it rears its head in all sorts of nefarious ways. And we can like rightly look out and go, Christian nationalism, that's the kingdom of darkness. Yeah, absolutely. Racism, that's the kingdom of darkness. Yes, 100%. Homophobia, that's the kingdom of darkness. Yes. And yet, what is our Egypt? So one of the things that happens when uh, Michael Walzer does his famous work on Exodus and Revolution one of the things that he points out in the work is whenever we overthrow Egypt, we end up just replacing it with our own. And so empire takes over empire, takes over empire, and the oppressee becomes someone else's oppressor. And that until the kingdom of God arrives, that will be the way the world works. And so enter the story, this guy named Moses. You might have heard of him. He's kind of a big deal. They've made cartoons about him. Christian Bale uh, was in a movie about him. <laughs> and so Moses, right? And this is like, this text is so beautiful, y'all. It is so beautiful. So Moses is this Hebrew baby who is not thrown into the Nile, but is placed into the Nile, and this, this is where like your English Bibles just don't do it justice, into this little like thing, and they'll call it a basket or whatever, that the word is ark, and you haven't seen the word since Genesis. They take, take Moses and they place him in the Nile into this ark, and he is then taken out of the rivers of death, right? This is a, right, we're talking about, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's like resurrection, right? And... Like Pharaoh's nemesis is going to be a Hebrew baby who is set into the Nile and brought out of it. 
And so the very thing that he is trying to do to the Hebrew people is the very thing that ends up destroying him. And this is kind of the way that Exodus works. And so Moses uh, ends up trying to do this on his own. He's like out walking around one day. He sees an Egyptian uh, uh, abusing one of his fellow brothers, an Israelite. And so he kills the Egyptians. And the word is he strikes him. Right? And so if we're following Genesis here, it's creation and then decreation and then Cain and Abel. And so we see another Hebrew striking this Egyptian and I'm gonna deliver the world through my violence and yet it doesn't work. Moses doesn't liberate anyone. His own people reject him. And he ends up, much like Israel would do after God strikes the Egyptians, he ends up fleeing to the land of Midian where he gets married and we fast forward. And there in Midian, as he's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, we get to Exodus chapter three. We'll pick it up in verse seven. So this is the burning bush story. And there's just too much here to talk about because uh, y'all got places to be and food to eat. Um, but like God reveals himself in this burning bush and he reveals himself as, he's like, hey, I, I don't know who you are. What should I, who should I tell them you are? And he says, I am. And we won't get into all the like nerdy Hebrew grammatical stuff, but it is the to be verb. You tell them that I am the one who exists. I am the source of all things. This is Aristotle's unmoved mover. Now, the way that this works in the story is Pharaoh, theologically, would have been the center of the theological universe. That that Pharaoh is where heaven and earth meet. And if you want to encounter the gods of Egypt, which were the most powerful gods in the land at the time, you encountered them through Pharaoh, who himself was divine. And at this point in history, this is rather unique. Like emperors hadn't really figured out like, hey, I could go around calling myself God and that actually does some really nice things for me. So this was unique. So at the center of this story is the God who says, no, 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 I am the source of life and all things and all being. And the Pharaoh who says, no, 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 I am the source of all life and all things and all being. And they're about to step into the ring, kind of like Musk and what's his name are about to step into the ring, which my goodness, y'all, 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 have y'all heard about this? Just like, I, I don't know, 200 years from now, they're gonna be looking through our history and be like, what were they doing? Like, show some mercy. It was a pandemic. They, were, they had a lot they were dealing with. Like, oh my gosh. They let their billionaires just punch each other in the face? I don't get it. Okay. Uh, sorry. Chapter three, verse seven. And the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. Right, I love this. This is so beautiful. I have come down to rescue them so that I might bring them up. This is Mary's prayer. So that I might bring them up to a land that is good, a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And if you read Genesis, then you know who all these people are, and it's totally fine. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so there's this language that's employed here, and I I just want to make a point that I've kind of already made. Service to Egypt service to empire, giving yourself over to this thing out there that promises you fulfillment and happiness and blessing and flourishing is actually really oppression. And that oppression is burdensome and it is in the end uh, death giving. And that God hears the cries of the oppressed. That God
God sees the affliction of his people. That God sees and knows, as it says later on in this chapter. That wherever you're at right now, one of the things that Jesus assures us of is that God knows what you're going through. Not just in some sort of like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard of that story before. But like, no, 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 God has somehow and mysteriously and mystically entered into human suffering and even into your suffering, according to Romans chapter 8. So that even when you are in so much pain that you can't even cry out anymore, the Holy Spirit is crying out on your behalf because that's who this God is. The God of the oppressed, a liberating God. And so God goes on as he encounters Moses at this bush in chapter 3 in verse 10. Because the goal is not just liberation, but liberation into a blessing, into a spacious land of plenty. It's not just freedom from oppression, it's liberation into blessing. So verse 10, and now come and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt, right? And this is a fair question because, dude, the last time you were there, you tried to like kill a guy and that didn't go very well because not only did you kill the guy and then you had to run for your life because the Egyptians hated you, the people who you were defending are like, why'd you do that? That was dumb. Are you going to kill us too? And so you're running from everyone. And so when Moses is like, who am I? This isn't just some sort of like, yeah, and he's a really insecure guy. And so all of us who are insecure can read this and know. Like, no, no, no. He has every reason to believe I have no business going back there. The Israelites don't want me. The Egyptians want to kill me. Why would I ever go back? And look at God's response. He said, assuredly, I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. And this is where the NASB covers this up a little bit. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain. Right, so the Egyptians oppressed them and enslaved them and, and uh, the language that's used over and over and they served Pharaoh and they served Pharaoh and they served and they were oppressed by their service to Pharaoh and I will liberate you and free you into serving me. This is not just liberation out of an empire into like, I don't know, it's the United States, do what you want. No, this is liberation into a serving of God which is life-giving and that's next week's sermon. But in this text, what we have here is Moses going, yeah, but I can't do this. Yeah, but I can't do this. Yeah, but I can't do this. And over and over and over, God going, but I can, but I can, but I can. And so there's this like pronoun war. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can nerd out on that and read Genesis chapter three and count the pronouns. But it's this I going back and forth. And the ultimate kind of thing that I like here that encapsulates this whole thing is I will be with you but I will be with you. The deliverance of God's people is not dependent on Moses' leadership skills. The deliverance of God's people is not uh, dependent on Moses' five-year plan. The deliverance of God's people is not dependent on Moses's. well, he was in Egypt, and so he was highly educated and trained. He must have had a PhD or several research degrees. It's not dependent on that. It's not dependent on how much he could bench. It's not dependent on how good he was with a sword. It's not dependent on how good he spoke. 
The liberation of the Israelites is dependent on the fact that God has assured Moses, I will be with you and I am a liberating God. So wherever I go, liberation comes with me. And Moses' response is, amen. No, it's not actually. It's, uh, no, hold on. I can't talk good. And he's like, fine, Aaron will go with you. It'll be fine. And so this showdown commences where Moses and Aaron are going into the presence of Pharaoh. And, and we read this because we're not ancient Near Eastern peoples. We read this as like, oh yeah, this is Pharaoh and Moses. And we're really good modernists. Right, so it's the leader of the Israelites versus the leader of the, uh, the Egyptians, and they're gonna go toe-to-toe in the boardroom, and it's like the worst way of reading this ever. The way that an ancient Near Eastern person would have read this is, no, no, this is Yahweh, the God of the burning bush, the God of the slaves, is going toe-to-toe with the gods of the Egyptians who are personified in the person of Pharaoh. This is a theological war that's about to take place, this, this showdown. And so the looming question is, who has the power? who actually has the power to bless, who actually has the power to cause humanity to flourish, who actually has the power over life and death, and all of a sudden you begin to see where this story is going and the point that it's trying to make. So you get the plagues, and I'm not gonna go through all the plagues. You can read them on your own. You're probably very familiar with them from the Prince of Egypt and Veggie Tales and other sorts of things like that. They probably didn't do the plagues in Veggie Tales. They were probably like, I don't know, something silly, like jelly beans or something. But the plagues start, and they, there's 10 of them, and they're done in sets of three, the same way that they're like, the way that creation is told is there's three days, and then a reprieve, and then three days, and then rest. The way that this is told is there's three days of decreation, three more days of decreation, three more days of decreation, and then the 10th day, the 10th plague. And each one, each set of three escalates. See, I wasn't gonna talk about it, and you got me talking about it. And so like the first three Moses is able to handle the snake, right, Genesis. Moses, you're gonna have power over the snake, don't worry. The snake is also this figurehead that would sit on Pharaoh's throne or on Pharaoh's headrest to represent the power and authority, right? So there's, there's like tons here. And then like, so Moses would do these things and then Moses' sorcerers or magicians or Harry Potter wizards, whatever, are able to like match him. Verse three, the next three, things escalate. All of a sudden the magicians are like, yeah, we can't do this. And people start to get a little worried. Last three, literally everyone in Egypt is like, whoa, Pharaoh, seriously? Can we not just let these people go? And Pharaoh is the only one in the story that's like, now nah, we're good, right? Now, there's like the whole thing about Pharaoh hardening his heart. Um, text me, we'll talk. But what happens as these plagues play out is that this 10th and final, and the word that the Hebrew uses over and over and over again is the strike, I'm going to strike you. It's not actually plague. Um, it's like set apart as its own thing. And this, it's meant to be read as a response to Pharaoh's killing of an oppressed people's firstborn. And, and can I just suggest that, that, right, again, we're asking the right questions here as modern people, but we're also asking the right questions as modern people from a privileged position. And that for centuries, enslaved and oppressed people have read the story of the Exodus in a very different way and have not asked these same types of questions. Well, why would God do that? No, no, they deeply understood why God would do that and somehow found it liberating. And so this doesn't 
deal with our questions or address their questions, but it, it just offers a perspective. One of the things that I would encourage you to do is read um, people like James Cone, people who are speaking out from a, an oppressed position. How are they interpreting these passages? What questions are they asking and what answers are they giving? And that's my easy way of uh, side-skirting your question there. But seriously, in this, there's something striking. There's, no pun intended. There's something different here. So Pharaoh is, hey, I'm gonna take all your firstborn and I'm gonna throw them into the river. Don't care who they are, whether we're just throwing them in the river. And, and God responds, I'm gonna take all the firstborn in the land of Egypt and I'm going to destroy them, except if you'll take this lamb and they go through this whole Passover ritual. You take this blood and you put it on the doorpost. Everyone who's inside the house will be spared from the destroyer that is somehow going through and destroying things. And so even in this, you see this picture of grace. That that God offers this way out and not just to like, no, no, you have to ethnically be this. No, no, it's anyone who's not just in a house that has this blood, but you could be a neighbor and you could run in the house. And if you're in the house, if you're in the blood, you're spared. And what happens here is in Hebrew, it takes this language of ark and it flips it around and it uses this language of in the house. uh, And it's actually the reversal of in the ark. It's this play on poetic Hebrew stuff that's nerdy and fun. But the idea is that there is liberation and deliverance even for the people who are the enemies of the slaves because God is a God of liberation and a God of grace. And so even in the midst of this, there is grace. And the requirement here is that if I want this grace, my allegiance has to change. Right? The real question is, do I believe what God is telling me and do I do this like uh, strange thing of taking this lamb and following these really uh, precise instructions and then paying that blood on my door and then like hanging out and seeing what happens? Or do I believe the Pharaoh that has been oppressing me and my people for 400 years? Do I trust what the Pharaoh's gonna say or do I trust what God is gonna say? And, and this is a question that is both for the Egyptians as well as the Israelites. And so we get to, verse 29 of chapter 12. Sorry, if you're running slides, I put a whole chunk in there. Skip down to 29. And now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, uh, sorry, hold on. So when we hear that in the land of Egypt, I think we hear the, like, all those who were in, they were Egyptian. What we forget is that Israel is very much in the land of Egypt. This is anyone in this region, right? From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, right, and hear the indictment there. What could Pharaoh, the God of all life, the God of all like being, what could he do to stop it? To the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle, which would have been a sacred animal for the Egyptians. And Pharaoh got up in the night and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, there was a great cry. This is a mirror of the cry of earlier in the story. There was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and he said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel and go and worship the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds and your mom and your wife and everybody and go. And bless me also. Right, like, 
look at how this story, well, sort of ends. (laughs) That the hard-hearted, obstinate Pharaoh recognizes, I am not the source of blessing. I am not the source of life. I am not the king of the world. That there is one out there who is greater than me, who is more blessed than me, who is actually the great I am, the one who can bless all things. And in this, uh, Walter Brueggemann, he's a, an Old Testament theologian that I really love. He rightly says this. In this moment, Pharaoh recognizes that the power to bless is not in the grasp of the empire. So the idea, as we fast forward, and we think of some of Jesus' language, if you think that you're going to find life outside of me, like I'm just telling you, it's not out there. Not because I'm like refusing to give it to you, but because it can only be found in me. I am the life and the resurrection. Come to me and I will give you blessings on blessings on blessings on blessings. Blessings that you're not even asking for. Life that you, you've never dreamed of. Come to me, all you who are weary. And the real invitation is to come to the God of the Exodus, not out of fear that he's gonna destroy you, but out of recognition that everything outside of him is destroying you. He is the source of life and flourishing and peace. And that wherever you are, it is probably Egypt. And Exodus is inviting you to see the illusion of the empires that we are looking to for our flourishing. The empires that we think are going to give us life. Maybe even the empires that we're just afraid of because we have every reason to be afraid of them. Look how this story actually ends. In Exodus chapter 14, Verse 13, so this is uh, Pharaoh once again changes his mind. He's, hey, bless me, this like act of contrition, this recognition. And then in a few verses later, he's going to say, nah, never mind. We got to kill them because this was pretty humiliating. And he takes like the best of his army and he's riding out against the Israelites as they're fleeing. Right? Remember, this is like a, a ragtag group of slaves who, yeah, have just like taken all the Egyptian stuff. Actually, it was given to them. That's a whole other conversation. And so they're like trundling on through the desert and here comes like the world's superpower army after them. And now they're caught between the sea and this, this army of chariots that's racing down on them and they again are faced with a question, who are we gonna trust? And they begin to grumble like, you've brought us out here to die. Did we not have it better back in Egypt? Like our oppressor was so wonderful and awesome and great. In verse 13, Moses looks to the people and he says this, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see ever again because the Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. And I love that. Because this is the invitation into a life of faith. What does the Exodus invite us into? It invites us into the recognition that God is actually and really for you and that God is actually and really working for your good and all you need to do is be still and watch the God who fights for you show up and do what God has assured you he's going to do. Now I realize that sounds really great, talking into a microphone, check in on me on like Monday or in like an hour. (laughs) 
because the chariots are real. The empire is real and there is real power that it is exerting and there is real darkness that actually really affects us. And yet Jesus has assured us that his kingdom, his upside down way really is actually the way of life. And the church for generations understood this and believed this so deeply that they were willing to go to their deaths for it. That in the face of the Roman Empire, they said, look, the empire can't do anything to me. You can kill me, but what are you gonna, what, that does nothing because my God is a God of resurrection. They believed this so deeply that they were willing to be thrown into the Colosseum over it. They understood that their God was a liberating God of love who was for them and who was fighting for them. And this Yahweh This God of the burning bush, this I am, the God of all being, is ferociously relational, committed to his people. And Jesus says, be my brother, be my sister, be God's sons and daughters, be the people of God. And with this, we're assured of the presence of God, the liberating life-giving presence of God. And so whatever tomorrow looks like, whatever things that you're confronting and facing, whatever empire, uh, the shadow of whatever empire you're living in, please hear these words. Jesus is actually for you. He's actually fighting with you. And he has actually promised to finish what he has started. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.